Texas Business Minds, a presentation of the Texas Business Journals. Brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas. In this episode, Dallas Business Journal Managing Editor Rob Schneider welcomes 40 Under 40 honoree Andrea Durham, who shares how she's reshaping clinical trials to make them more inclusive and how she's growing her business gradually. Andrea Durham is owner, principal consultant at Durham Research Collaborative, a boutique consulting firm specializing in clinical trials and public health. It has a mission to make clinical research more inclusive, more accessible, and more seamless. We're going to talk to Andrea about her firm, and we're going to talk about uh, this entire concept and get to know Andrea. She was also one of our 40 Under 40 honorees this year. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you for having me. So first of all, tell us more about what the Durham Research Collaborative is and what it does. Well, uh, being based in Dallas, Texas, um, it's an entrepreneurial hub. And as I was working for a large CRO or contract research organization that assists pharmaceutical companies with uh, implementing their clinical trials, I noticed that there was a lack of diversity at the patient level, the investigator level, investigator meaning physician level, and also at the corporate level, meaning the key decision makers on what projects are implemented, what sites get selected, and how they go about the overall conduct of trials. And I noticed this, I was working on an asthma study. And asthma, um, if you look at the statistics, African-Americans are 40% more likely to suffer from asthma. And I did an unscientific poll of my colleagues and found out that among hundred, at least a hundred physicians, none of us had African-American physicians um, working on the trial. So as a, a CRA or a clinical research associate, I'm a monitor, basically a mini auditor. So I audit the study or oversee the conduct of the study as the trial is being conducted. And I often go out to sites and visit with them and make sure they understand the protocol, make sure their recruitment is on goal. And just notice that even though this illness impacts African-Americans more, there wasn't a large African-American population taking part in the trial and the physicians were not African-American themselves. And why that's important is because not always, but given the choice of selecting a physician, you often connect with a physician that has the same cultural background as you. So if I were a woman and going for a woman well check, a lot of women do want to be treated by women. Or if I am a Muslim, I am most likely going to select a Muslim physician just for cultural understanding and connection. And by limiting the physicians that we select on our trials, we can be inadvertently cutting out a large population of patients who otherwise could definitely benefit from taking part in our trials. And we could also benefit because we have more data, a vast uh, array of data. Now, one of the great things about meeting our honorees is that I get to learn about a lot of things. And this is, like many things, something I had no idea about. But as I read it, it makes complete sense that you'd want better inclusion rates, uh, better diversity in the samples of these things. 
So I'll ask you to set this up by, by talking about this problem and its history. And you did just a little bit of this before, but I wanted you to expand on it. And the, really the problem that your firm is trying to solve and what the history of that has been and where you are in that problem right now. Because, uh, and we'll, we'll expand on this further. So as we saw with COVID, uh, clinical trials were scrambling or, and pharmaceutical companies were scrambling to include enough diversity in their clinical trials. Although despite, you know, ethnicity and race, there are some genetic nuances. And we didn't know how different communities or populations would respond. And so by having throughout the years excluded certain populations, whether that is based on age, based on race and ethnicity, based on socioeconomic status, it just left us kind of scrambling to get all those patients into, find the patients to be quite honest, and then encourage them or establish understanding that made them comfortable enough to take part in the clinical trial. And so that is a constant battle that we are facing. And I'm grateful that now the, not only is the industry, not only are our pharmaceutical companies, our CROs and even sites, but also a regulatory agencies such as the FDA and CMS, the Medicaid and Medicare service of the U.S. are now taking part in taking steps to make clinical research more inclusive. So the FDA has put out guidances to, you know, make sure that organizations include more diverse patient populations. CMS has now agreed to provide approvals for more investigational therapies. So before, if a clinical trial required insurance coverage for the treatment, that often excluded those patients that were on Medicaid and Medicare. So only those individuals with private insurance. So that means people that have a higher socioeconomic status or being included in clinical trials. And so that's something else that often comes up because often our trials are global trials, meaning that they can include 10 to 20 different countries. And so you see countries with universal health care including a more broad array of patients versus the U.S. limiting their patient pool to those of a certain socioeconomic status. When we talk about the problem overall and moving us forward, what the Durham Research Collaborative aspires to do is to have an impact at all levels of the clinical trial industry. So the patient population, making sure that individuals that would benefit from clinical trials or have an interest in clinical trials fully understand what it means to take part. So meaning they understand informed consent, what all goes into that. It's not just signing a form. It starts from the time you learn of the trial, from the time that you are recruited into the trial, and then it continues on after you are enrolled in the trial. So anytime you have a question or have some concerns, you should be having that discussion with the physician or the investigator on the trial. And they should be able to provide you answers. If they don't have answers, then that's something that the clinical trial team goes back and has a discussion about. Another thing that we try to do is make sure that investigators are diverse. So that means more women investigators are taking part in as clinical and principal investigators on clinical trials. It means the staff is diverse. 
there is a huge barrier to breaking into the clinical research industry. They have that experience clause in a lot of the selection criteria for candidates and investigators. So if you don't have experience, then they won't consider you. But how do you get the experience that's needed to break in? So one of the things that I'm working on right now, I've identified two physicians uh, that are interested in taking part in clinical research. So getting them ready to accept clinical trials, complete site selection visits, and yeah, so they're ready to start taking on clinical trials. The other thing is to train professionals. So if a student graduates and they know they want to go on to nursing school or medical school or some other healthcare profession, they can use a take a gap year or two to work in clinical research. Perfect. You're actually learning how to uh, take readings of blood pressure, complete ECGs or uh, electronic So you're learning how to complete clinical assessments. When I was a study coordinator, you know, I basically saw patients, recruited patients, consented patients, did all the study assessments. I actually had the opportunity to to titrate their medication. So if their insulin required some changing, I was able to do that and make my recommendations to the physician I was working under, who would then review it and approve it. And we were able to get actually several patients, their their A1Cs dropped significantly, which was the goal, you know, to make sure, you know, the, of the medication, but it requires proper, proper titration, finding the right mix for that particular patient, also educating that patient to be compliant with the study treatment regimen. And so that's the perfect opportunity. So it's about matching individuals who want to go into the industry, patients who want to take part in clinical trials, and physicians who are interested to the right pharmaceutical company or the right clinical trial. So that's a little bit of what, you know, the Durham Research Collaborative has done. And so I'm pleased that I've been able to assist several individuals who had tried for a time, you know, maybe months, maybe years to get into the clinical research industry. And with a 30 minute phone call of me guiding and coaching them, they were able to land their first true clinical research role that will will basically be the foundation of their careers and they can build off of it. Because sometimes you'll get into a role and it's not exactly what you're expecting. You don't have the right title or you're not doing the right um, role. One of the important things that you mentioned there, it isn't just trying to get a more inclusive rate, whether it be socioeconomic background, race, ethnicity, uh, male, female, in terms of the people that are taking part in this study, but really the people that are administering this and because Correct. and having people that look like them as part of this. And I would think that that would also factor into if somebody might have a distrust of a clinical trial or, or, or things like that. A lot of things we saw, we saw with the vaccination rates as well. Correct. So it's about building trust. It's about building community. By taking part, you're able to offer more treatment options for patients in that particular community, but also you create jobs, lots of jobs out there. Actually, in my industry or my role as a CRA, many companies are struggling to staff their projects because, again, with the caveat of having experience, a lot of people are considered unqualified. So there's already a shortage of CRAs. If they're using the same physicians over and over again, that patient pool 
is constantly depleted. So there's not enough patients. And so it's just really about creating jobs. It's about creating an ecosystem within the industry that really works well together. There are some obvious reasons why making clinical research more inclusive, accessible, and seamless is a good thing. But what are some of the things that people might not be thinking about that are also net benefits of getting a more inclusive uh, trial? So we have in our history, so we have individuals that were experimented on in Nazi concentration camps, Jewish individuals who were subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. Then we also had Tuskegee where individuals were the patient population, African-Americans, were excluded from well-known treatment, which was penicillin. Um, so they weren't infected with syphilis, but with treatment was withheld. You know, it was widely accepted that penicillin was the treatment for syphilis at the time, and it was withheld. So just making sure that individuals know what to expect, that they have a right to say no to a trial, that they have a right to receive the standard of care if there is a standard of care. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if there's a diabetes trial, we're not going to give patients placebo. You're going to get the new experimental drug or the standard of care. I deal a lot with rare diseases. If you have a rare disease and there is no treatment, in that instance, you would get a placebo versus the experimental drug or treatment. So just making sure that individuals know on all sides, because they offer different perspectives. A lot of trials now have patient reported outcomes where they actually, at the beginning of each study visit, they will actually sit and complete a questionnaire about their experience, how they feel the treatment is going for them, how they feel the study is going for them. And like I said before, informed consent or your agreement to take part in a trial is ongoing until you leave the trial, whether you complete the trial to the end or you decide that I want to early terminate or I want to leave a study early. Mm -hmm. You always have that choice. So that's one of the things that we, we the Durham Research Collaborative brings in when it comes to patient advocacy and education. The other piece is that involving different physicians from different communities that means that your recruitment will probably be met quicker versus you're constantly scrambling, you know, to find patients or you didn't recruit enough of the right sites. So now you have to bring on new sites. You have to close old sites because they didn't recruit any patients at all. So that means your trial is completed quicker and that you can submit to the FDA for approval quicker. So the bottom line is that your investigational treatment could possibly get approval faster because you have to have a minimum patient population so that it can be generalized to the greater population. Have you found that you've also had buy-in from the companies that are running these clinical trials? I assume the drug companies, the people making these drugs, has that been tough to get the buy-in from them or have they been buy-in from the beginning? I think with COVID, COVID really opened our eyes to a lot, just the industry, actually the world. It just opened our right. eyes. And I think a lot of companies are doing some soul searching and they've come up with how they are going to move forward. For instance, not just putting in place a diversity and inclusion and equity person, 
But now they're partnering with companies or even colleges and universities. Pfizer just announced a partnership with Morehouse Medical School. I actually attended a diversity conference put on by the Society of Clinical Research Sites back in May. So there was a whole day dedicated to diversity and inclusion in clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there is definitely movement towards being more inclusive So now the conversation might be that we need to focus on patient diversity, but how do you get that, right? Are we talking about by putting more key decision makers that have diverse backgrounds in in key roles to make decisions? Are we talking about bringing on more diverse physicians? That's a conversation that I haven't heard a lot about that has really been pronounced in these discussions. Another thing that I want to bring up is that when we're training diverse populations, so a medical student, you go to undergrad, you go to medical school, then you submit for residency, your internship, your fellowships. What's been brought to light recently is that medical students or newer physicians of diverse backgrounds are not being offered the opportunity to specialize. So recently was talking with a colleague who was seeking physicians for a lupus trial. Well, lupus patients are treated by rheumatologists. And if we have this issue where African-American and Hispanic physicians are often forced into primary care medicine or internal medicine versus the opportunity to specialize, then that undercuts the effort to diversify clinical trials as well. So efforts like Pfizer and Morehouse, making sure that their up and rising physicians have the opportunity to specialize, we need to make sure that, that we pay close attention to that as well. Andrea Durham joining us. In our next segment, she shares her vision for future growth when Texas Business Minds continues. How did Texas Mutual Insurance Company make over 67,000 business owners smile? By sending $330 million in dividends to our workers' comp policyholders. See how we can make your business safer, stronger, and better at texasmutual.com better. You're a pretty new firm. You call yourself a startup. Really often, I think it's, it's just you doing this work. Talk about where you are on what you want to accomplish and where you would like to be, say, in five years? Oh, five years. Yeah, so we've officially formed in May 2020 and didn't really start taking clients until November 2020. So we're coming up on two years of actually taking clients and having clients. When it comes to having long-term success and and building a sustainable business, slow and steady wins the race. So it's not about gaining as many customers as possible when you don't have the capacity. So what we're currently working on is having the first physician. So like I mentioned earlier, I have identified two physicians who are ready to start accepting clinical trials. So that's really the passion. That's really why I started the Durham Research Collaborative. So I think getting those individuals their first clinical trials will be the perfect success. And from that, I expected to have a snowball. The physician community is very insulated. And with doing a good job and serving those clients very well, 
I have no doubt that they will make recommendations for other physicians. And so it should spread by word of mouth. So that's key is building that good, solid network of physicians and making sure they have well-trained, competent staff to carry out those clinical trials. The next piece is government contracting. So I had a mentor a few years back. She's still my mentor. She kind of pointed out that she knew my passion was physician consulting. And so in order to fund that passion, I had to find something more sustainable or seed money. And so what I do is I do contract with contract research organizations. And the other piece is government contracting. So I don't know, a lot of people don't know this, but the government purchases lots of goods and services. And I think a lot of companies are just kind of leaving a lot of money doesn't get spent just because there's not companies or businesses to take on the projects to do the work. So uh, earlier this year, I was awarded the Economically Disadvantaged Woman-Owned Small Business Certificate by the Small Business Association. And so what that means is that, you know, a lot of agencies will have a certain amount of funds or certain projects set aside for small businesses with certain certifications. And so that means that those funds allotted That means that a company like myself would not be competing against some of the larger conglomerates of project management and consulting firms. So we have secured that. We're working on um, putting together our pitch, finding opportunities. And so that's the next piece. Um, And so my goal is, of course, all the way around is to create jobs, not just in the clinical research industry space, but also just in general, like these government contracts, they have to hire people to carry out the work. And if they are able to gain experience and training and certifications as a result of that, again, that's a good building block for their career outlook. You said in your survey that you fell into this career. You didn't really start out doing this. Talk about that and how you came to be where you are. So... You know, I'm actually originally from Memphis, Tennessee, and have a background in urban studies. So that's a mixture of political science, education, history, sociology, and anthropology. And so my first job out of undergrad was public health. I was a community outreach specialist working on uh, SIDS and infant mortality in Memphis. And an opportunity became available at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And it was working on their smoky cessation hotline. Well, a smoky cessation, each state actually has a smoking cessation hotline. And so I was like, oh, well, it's public health. Uh, But the reality was it was an NIH study. So that's how I kind of fell into clinical research. And and if you ask Hmm. most people, in the industry, they're like, oh, well, I was originally a nurse or I had a poli-sci background and this opportunity came available. You know, I saw that it was traveling, you know, it offered travel and I was like, okay. So most people do definitely fall into clinical research. And then when I was looking for opportunities outside of Memphis, you know, I was, wasn't was really concerned or convinced that I was stay in clinical research, but I'm glad I did. I actually got the call from UT Southwestern, but I had applied to numerous health departments because I had a background in epidemiology um, or the study of disease and populations. So uh, more technical, more population-based, but UT Southwestern gave me a call and I had the opportunity to 
head up one of their clinical trials, a quite large clinical trial. That was a, a biobank. So, very good. How long have you been in DFW? Uh, Eleven years. Eleven, 11 years. years. Wow. Yeah. Welcome and and welcome to. I often say this is a lot. This is a city of transplants a lot of times. And uh, I, I know I, I myself moved here and and uh, welcome and and it's a great place to do business. Absolutely, absolutely. So in your survey, you also said when I asked about your biggest obstacle, you mentioned imposter syndrome. You, so uh, I think that that's probably something that that might resonate with some of our uh, listeners. Tell us about your experience with that and how you've overcome it. I've heard it or seen it quoted that women in particular, <laughs> if they're going out for a role, they have to have meet 60% or more of the qualifications. Whereas with men, if they have 25%, they're just going to shoot their shot and see what happens. The same thing with entrepreneurship. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And I guess it's just, for me, it's the fear of unknown. You know, what are the risks that I don't know about what about negotiation? And you know, a lot of people, they have family members that are entrepreneurs. I don't have that family history of entrepreneurship. I mean, my sister has her own law firm, but other than that, it's just me just kind of gathering information as I go along. And sometimes if I don't know everything, which sometimes it's just me overthinking. So that's where it's just, uh, like, am I doing this right? You know, and do I have all the right information? Are they going to resonate? Is it, you know, are, are my pitches going to resonate with a potential client? But luckily enough, I do have a mentor that I found through SCORE, actually. So for those interested in pursuing uh, entrepreneurship, please tap into SCORE.org. It's a free resource of retired business professionals that are willing to pass along their information to new and up and rising entrepreneurs. So I do have a mentor through SCORE and he said, yeah, it's difficult to make things up as you go along. You know, just, it's a snowball effect. When you get your bearings, you'll know it, just keep going. And so sometimes it's just about getting out of my own way. I'm typically not a person that touts my accomplishments. And so sometimes I forget about them. <laughs> like, for instance, with the, the SBA certification, I didn't realize that was kind of like a thing, right. um, you know, because a lot of people don't put in the time, they haven't researched it enough, or, you know, they don't see the value of it, or they've spent money to get that certification, when really they could have just put in the, the time and sweat equity to get it themselves. When I asked you about your single biggest thing that will change your industry in the future, you mentioned embracing DEI, but from the top to the bottom of the industry. Can you talk about what that means? Yes. So when we embrace DEI from the top to the bottom, it just means that making sure that we have diverse perspectives in the rooms that are key decision makers, meaning that if pharmaceutical company A says that, well, we want to, you know, make sure that our trials are diverse and that we want to seek treatments for even rare diseases that affect only a subset of the population, that we put those policies in place and that we hold ourselves to it. And if we don't, are not holding ourselves to those policies, what tweaks do we need to make? And so by having diverse perspectives, as I mentioned earlier, 
people from diverse backgrounds have those diverse perspectives. They will in turn make decisions about what treatments they're pursuing, what clinical trials they're implementing, what physicians, what sites, what communities they're uh, implementing the clinical trials into, and then therefore what patients are being recruited into their trials. So it's, it's really from the top to the bottom. And then also it's important not to just put somebody in a DE&I position and give them a title, you're making sure that this is a mainstay in your organization, not a pet project. They're not a figurehead, but they have real decision-making capacity. And also, I would say that um, not having just a director or a vice president of DEI, but having a chief DEI inclusion officer and including them in all of those C-suite communications and decision-making conversations. Well, thank you, Andrea. This has been a really fascinating discussion. I, uh, I'm i always excited to learn about things that, that I didn't know about. And so I was really excited to talk to you about your firm. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Andrea Durham joining us. Thank you for downloading Texas Business Minds, presented by the Texas Business Journals and brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas.